Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. I'm currently joined by Uriel Epstein. He is the executive director of the Renewed Democracy Initiative, an organization that is on a spirited effort to advance liberal democracy in the United States and around the world. So Uriel, thank you so much for joining Sanity. Thank you so much for having me, and I very much appreciate your use of the adjective spirited. <laughs> yes, this whole arena needs a lot of spirit and energy because the uh, the road is long, and uh, I'm sure you, you understand that very well. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> well, to kick off our conversation, I'd actually love to start by talking a little bit about your own background and what led you to be interested in this space when you were a student at Yale, you started um, the Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative that you still have an uh, involvement with, and uh, its capstone annual trip is a trip to Israel. So I'd, I'd love to just hear about what led you to be interested in this whole space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my own, my own background really had pretty significant influence on me. I mean, my parents were refugees from the former Soviet Union. So they actually left uh, the Soviet Union very early on in the 70s to go to Israel. And then from Israel, they came to the US in the 80s. You know, really ever since, I've been incredibly interested in anything relating to international relations, anything relating to sort of human rights and, and dignity. And quite frankly, a lot of those things that my parents didn't have back in the Soviet Union. And so when I was a student at, in college, I found that a lot of the conversation around Israeli-Palestinian issues was incredibly shrill. Right. It was basically, you know, two sides. They were mutually exclusive. And I found that to be, you know, this really false dichotomy because, you know, what my own kind of understanding of the political situation had evolved over time. And I found myself really sympathizing with folks on any and all sides. And, you know, over time, I've also discovered that neither side is a monolith. You know, so kind of that, that, that was the initial seed for the idea of PDLI. And, you know, what really sort of led me to, to organizing the uh, initiative was that one of my best friends was a guy from Karachi, Pakistan. And he and I kind of had this running joke that if I uh, brought him to Israel, he would bring me to Pakistan. And so, you know, I, at the time I actually took it seriously and I thought it would be very easy to get him to Israel. And then over time, I, you know, after talking to a number of organizations, I found that it actually wouldn't be quite so simple because at the very, on the very front of his passport, it said valid for all countries except for Israel. And so despite the fact that here was a guy who was brilliant, who was, you know, really nuanced in his thinking and who could really serve as a bridge between two otherwise very disparate cultures, there was no way to get him involved in that moment. You know, at that point, that's when I'm like, all right, you know, something needs to be done here. And I started pulling together this organization. That was one piece of it. And the other piece of it was my realization that the vast majority of students at Yale had never met a soldier. They had no connection to the American military, whereas in Israel, for example, you know, almost everybody serves in the military. And so this was this, you know, really clear divide. And, and, and that divide was actually made all the more poignant for me because I happen to have a number of friends on Yale's campus who are either active duty or veteran. And so many of them described feeling alienated on campus. I was very lucky in becoming very good friends with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Faint, 
who was in one of my grad classes, and uh, he became one of my founding partners in creating this organization. And so we ended up developing a very close partnership between Yale students and West Point cadets. Uh, which has you know evolved over the years and become this you know sort of year long fellowship where which we end by visiting Israel and the Palestinian territories and it, it's become this incredibly meaningful thing and kind of promoting that dialogue has obviously influenced me a, a pretty significant amount as I'm thinking about promoting internal political dialogue here in the U.S. through uh, RDI. That's absolutely fascinating. Do you continue to go on these trips? And what are some of the, the most eye-opening takeaways you've, you've had from them? There, there are a few stories that, that really come to mind. I, unfortunately, I haven't been able to go the last two years just because it's always been sort of something I did on the side. So I'm currently the chair of the board, but I don't run the day-to-day of the organization anymore. But there have just been, you know, a number of different stories and, and some of them, you know, really concerning and others really uplifting couple that come to mind sort of right off the bat. The first was in the Palestinian territories. We went and, you know, I always wear a, um, a Jewish star of David as a necklace. It was a bar mitzvah gift. And we were meeting with the, the minister of education. I will never forget how, you know, we're meeting and, and you know, we have this, uh, you know, my, one of my associates comes up to me and, and, you know, he starts whispering in my ear and asking me to close my, uh, to hide my necklace to put it away because I couldn't be seen in a, in a government building in the West Bank w- with a Jewish symbol around my neck. And that to me was, was just a really jarring moment. Meanwhile, like you have other up, very uplifting moments. We had this meeting with Palestinian students who were talking about just their, their daily lives and how they hope to work in many of the same fields that the Yale student. Immediately after college and West Point cadets, I, guess, I suppose after their military service, were interested in working in. And there was this really genuine connection that kind of caught me off guard in a very positive way. And I saw that with Palestinian students. I saw that with Israeli students, uh, with various professionals. So there was both this realization that, listen, you know, these things are going to be tough and there's very significant misrepresentations on both sides that make sort of moving forward difficult. But the flip side is a realization that what it comes down to is just human to human contact. It's really hard to vilify the other if you know them personally. And so that's been one of my goals in, as, as we move forward was trying to get people to know one another on a personal level. It is amazing when you can see someone's humanity when you can get to know an individual as a person and realize they too have a mother and a father and siblings. I find myself often in environments because of because of this work where uh, people's perspectives have really shifted, uh, not so much that their own personal beliefs have necessarily changed, but their understanding for those with with opposing beliefs um, and and the approach to to those people as people and no longer enemies and others, that starts to shed a little bit, which is really powerful. I just, I I don't know. I mean, God willing, we'll be able to move forward on a political uh, basis for the conflict. But deep down, my personal belief is that the only way we're ever going to make progress in, in that area is if and when people on both sides, on all the sides, start actually interacting with one another more. So I think the person-to-person connection is key. And as I move forward with you know, my work, that's really what I'm thinking about. It's less about trying to find uh, at the highest levels political reconciliation. It's actually much more about trying to find at the grassroots level, just personal friendship. And shifting gears, but staying in the same theme, 
Renew Democracy Initiative's chairman is Gary Kasparov, who became well-known around the world uh, as the youngest world chess champion in history. This was in the, in the 80s, and he was born in the Soviet Union. So I, A, I'd love to just hear about how you and Gary connected and be what really what the mission of RDI, Renew Democracy Initiative, is. So I'll start with the first part, and uh, you know because it actually runs through PDLI. So Gary, I mean, I've known Gary's name since I was young, very young. I mean, he, especially among kind of the Russian expat community, is very much this, this hero, you know, someone who... Uh, not only is this chess champion, but most importantly, this human rights activist, you know, and I often try to put this into context for folks. I mean, chess in Russia is a national pastime, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, you know, I don't know if it's quite the equivalent of baseball, but it's right around there, which would make uh, Gary effectively the Russian Babe Ruth. And here's a man who had all of that, who had the trappings of fame and fortune, and he chose to risk all of that, sacrificing much of it, to stand up for what he believed was right against sort of the the, the Soviet and, and now Russian government of Vladimir Putin uh, and has effectively gone into self-exile here in the U.S. since 2013. In terms of how he and I became connected, um, one of the supporters of PDLI uh, is a guy named Igor Kerman, uh, with whom I became very good friends over the years, and he's a partner at Wachtel and also happens to be a member of the board of RDI. So he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you've had experience building this other organization and promoting dialogue and working with young people. Would you be interested in in sort of getting involved with RDI? And so uh, he introduced me to Gary and other members of the board. And after a number of conversations, initially we had kind of discussed partnership, but then, you know, Gary was like, hey, you know, would you be interested in actually running the organization and building us up from scratch? Obviously, that was an offer that uh, I simply couldn't refuse. And what is RDI's kind of core mission? So in one sentence, RDI's purpose is to create a constituency that genuinely understands and prioritizes liberal democratic values. And so here, I, I guess I can explain, you know, what I mean a little bit by liberal democratic. So, you know, I don't mean anything that's on the left, right? So instead, the word liberal Um, is intended to actually constrain the word democracy. It means that 51% of the population can't vote to strip away the rights from the other 49%. It means that minority rights are protected, that we have separation of powers in government, that there's an independent judiciary, universal suffrage, et cetera, et cetera. And so these are the ideas, these are the values that RDI is really meant to not just protect, but to promote and to really kind of foster this emotional connection in people uh, to these sort of fundamental principles that we believe undergird our representative republic here in the U.S. and really around the Western world. You're doing this in a few different tangible ways. One I'd like to discuss a little bit is is civic education. There's a statistic that you guys have on on your site that less than 30% of uh, 4th, 8th, or 12th grade students are proficient in civics, and there is a a real need for more civic education. What kind of efforts are you are you working on in that arena? That's that's one statistic and I'll actually add one more that to me is probably even more concerning and that's that 2 thirds of adults can't name all three branches of government. 
But what is actually more concerning than that is the fact that nobody has even really thought to ask the question of what percent of the one-third that can name all three branches actually understands wh uh, why, why we have three branches, right? So in other words, what percent of the one-third that knows there are three branches understands the background behind our separation of powers? And that's really the crux of what RDI is looking to address. Uh, in other words, it's not necessarily the priority to get folks to know how many members of Congress there are or these really basic facts that you can learn through a very quick Google search. Instead, we want folks to understand the values behind those. Our approach to this centers around this, what I'm calling a civics masterclass. And what I mean by that is we want to create materials that are going to be uh, you know, multimedia that anyone and everyone can get access to. I have kind of four core target demographics, high school students, high school teachers, college students, and the general public. And obviously the way we approach each of these demographics is going to be different. But the core goal is to create this intellectual and emotional connection in both students and adults to these values. You know, but really the core goal here is to create a modular set of resources that would ideally be both mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive that really anyone can take advantage of and that will really be easy to kind of consume. As you're designing this, how have you worked to create something that is nonpartisan or is, you know, is, is focused on kind of core facts that, that are not political? That's a really good question. And what it comes down to is kind of the unique composition of our board of directors. Gary, uh, you know, when he was working to pull together RDI alongside a number of partners and friends, they, they were really very focused on ensuring a wide cross-section of intellectual and ideological points of view. Initially, there was, you know, what Gary kind of semi-jokingly calls the Wall Street Journal refugees. People like Brett Stevens, Mark Glasswell, Max Boot, who came together and, ta and you know, started talking about, okay, what can we do after the 2016 election? And they were joined by folks on the left. So, you know, we have Senators Heidi Heitkamp, Bob Carey, Larry Tribe at Harvard, um, Asha Rangappa at Yale. Um, you know, and so what we end up getting is this incredible depth of experience and diversity of both understanding and professional experience as well as political viewpoint. And as a result, when, as we're creating these materials, all of these folks are going to be coming together. And if, uh, if any one of us uh, were to be creating this alone, there's kind of this inevitability of bias because we can only look at things through our own perspective, our own lens. But because we have this really diverse group of people, when we all come together, you know, one of us might propose you know, one approach or one idea, which someone else will immediately uh, say, oh, well, wait a second, you know, actually, I'm not so sure about that, you know, that think that that is entirely representative or whatever. What we're actually doing is kind of institutionalizing disagreement as a positive mechanism for creating these genuinely nonpartisan, we actually like to say postpartisan uh, materials. And, and one of the biggest dangers that I'm actually seeing today is a lot of folks are looking at disagreement as this necessary evil when in fact it's actually a positive good that we should be fostering and that we should be employing to ensure that our own points of view are being buttressed and supported 
by any number of other perspectives. You put out a manifesto and there's a, a line from it that stuck with me, largely given our own organization's name. And it says, our manifesto seeks to unite both the center left and center right by making the case for liberty, democracy, and sanity in, <laughs> in an age of discord. And so my, my question for you is, with my own bias, obviously a sentence like that appeals to me. But in the beginning of our conversation, we were talking a little bit about the importance of understanding and respecting people with differing beliefs. It's harder to walk the walk than it is to talk the talk, I think, in this space, especially in these really uh, hyper-partisan, hyper, you know, very divided times politically. How have you, or do you, you know, look at people who are Trump supporters, who don't necessarily agree with this type of uh, manifesto and this type of a concept? It's definitely a challenge. And, you know, I mean, we have a former, a former Trump official on our board, um, Dana White, who served uh, as the spokesperson to Secretary Mattis in the Pentagon. Well, the people whom we're targeting, the people whom we're looking at, it's what um, the Hidden Tribes Report, which was done by this organization called More in Common, calls the exhausted majority, you know, mm -hmm. which is approximately 70% of Americans. So these are folks who, you know, may be reluctant Trump voters or, you know, who may be further off on the left. But when push comes to shove, they're still sort of motivated by very similar things. They still sort of have similar ends in mind, right, even if they may disagree on means. And so those are the folks that we're trying to appeal to and talk to and really get this, this agreement, I would say, on fundamental values. Uh, whether you're on the left or the right, and including if you are, you know, what we would consider a reluctant Trump supporter. I mean, and now don't get me wrong, there are people in the U.S., both on the far left and the far right, who may not agree with us, who may not agree with, you know, some of the core principles that we've outlined in the manifesto. It's one of our key challenges. It's something I'm constantly thinking about. How do I appeal to people who, um, you know, may very well come from, you know, a significantly different perspective, not just, you know, center left or center right, but perhaps who would go uh, further out than that. And then the question becomes, how far out can we go? And basically, are there groups of people that we may not be able to appeal to? And so I think we have to be very realistic about how many people, I would say, are open to some of the, the messages that, you know, that we fundamentally believe in and how many people may not. And for something like that, I would really kind of look to reports such as the Hidden Tribes Report, which basically says, look, that there are 70% of people in the U.S. who are open to these things. Uh, or potentially, in any case, could be could become excited about these things. Right now, free, I, a lot of these folks find themselves exhausted. I mean, they find themselves politically homeless. They find themselves believing that they aren't really represented by either of the two major parties. And what you end up getting, actually, is a small minority of people on either side kind of capturing the conversation and moving it in, in the direction that they see fit. Um, and so as a result, you have the majority of people in the U.S. who may not necessarily identify with either of those perspectives feeling left out. And, and those are the people that we're targeting, the people who don't feel like they're really well represented by, I would say, the current polarized political discussion that we have here in the U.S. Uh, in March, you co-hosted a, a conference on democracy with Johns Hopkins, and you had some panels. One was called Discourse on the Left, 
and it had Donna Brazil as a as as one of the panelists. And another one was called Discourse on the Right, um, and had Jennifer Rubin from Washington Post, and Max Boot, and Dana White. Um, I'm curious if you could kind of contrast the differences between the discourse on the left and the discourse on the right, at least coming out of the that conference. The difference could not be more stark, if I'm being honest, in any case, based on that conference. So first, I need to caveat this. As you know, your listeners can probably tell from the names on the panel on the right, I mean, yes, these are absolutely folks who are marquee members of the what we would consider tradi- the traditional conservative movement. The panel was moderated by Bill Kristol. But these are folks who are very, very prominently not members of the pro-Trump majority in the Republican Party. Uh, and so a lot of these, you know, a number of these folks have, have effectively left the party. So Max Boot actually wrote a book about sort of his, his evolution on the subject. So I, I, I should caveat that. A real side note, I had Max Boot's book with me on a flight and I, I was going through security and this was actually during the shutdown. And <laughs> this woman that worked for TSA picked up the book. And I thought that she was, you know, maybe examining it for the purposes of, you know, checking out the material. She uh, she was actually interested in the subject and uh, particularly interested, I think, because because of the timing of the shutdown. But anyway, back to the conference. <laughs> you uh, you definitely have more interesting interactions with TSA than I do traditionally. But but yeah, so going back to the conference, I did just want to caveat that on on the conversation on the right. And so um, Dana White's very much still still a member of the party, and she had some really interesting perspectives. But I would say that the conversation on the right was arguably a lot more introspective in, in a lot of ways, and I think it was much more cautionary. It was basically thinking about okay, what went wrong, and how can we move forward. It was really thinking about the the fundamental underlying trends in in the conservative movement that led us to where we are today. Whereas the conversation on the left was much more assertive. It was much more forward-looking. It, it, was, it was more aggressive even. I mean, it was, it was really thinking about, okay, you know, the 2016 happened. We made some progress in the midterms, but now, you know, we need to turn our attention to 2020 and we need to be thinking about moving forward and how we can really bring back the, the values that, that are, are really held dear on the left. And one of the conversations that frequently we have when we're in conference with one another, so when the people who are on the panel on the right and the people who are on the panel on the left, and you know, when, when we're all talking together, it's different members kind of encouraging one another to be introspective and to be thinking about you know, perhaps some of the more extreme elements of our respective movements and whether or not they represent the best of us. And if so, uh, you know, what about them is particularly appealing? And if not, how can we move forward? I mean, how can we think about our respective people, our respective party, co-partisans, I suppose we can call them, in a really thoughtful and honest way? That was that's one of the challenges I'm, I'm, that I think we're seeing on the left is that we're we're very focused on moving forward on on being assertive and kind of taking back some of what the left sees as as having been lost in 2016. But I'm a little concerned about whether or not there's enough introspection there about how how the left can move forward in a responsible fashion and and kind of not not recreate but rather perhaps recapture some of the genuine cross-partisan civility that was at one point in time a part of our government. 
where you had different Democrats and Republicans spending time together socially, you know, getting to know one another on a personal basis, and even sponsoring bills together and, and kind of cooperating on that front where you had perhaps the most conservative member of the Democratic Party being in some ways more conservative than the most liberal member of the Republican Party. Whereas today, there's not that level of overlap. And so you kind of have each conversation going off in very different directions. And it's really one of our goals to try to put those two very disparate conversations back together and and have people rebuild some of those connections. I was at a conference last week uh, where someone mentioned, and I and I have to look into this further, but mentioned that actually post-2016, and this, this surprised me in a really wonderful, positive way, there have actually been more pieces of legislation co-sponsored by Republicans and, and Democrats in the Senate than, um, than there had been in, in years prior. I would love to ask you what you are most proud of in terms of what RDI has accomplished and what you think is your biggest challenge looking ahead? With, without any doubt, the, the, the biggest thing that RDI can offer is the intellectual diversity of our board of directors. I mean, bringing together such an incredible group of people is, I think, a pretty unique endeavor you know, within the nonprofit world. My key goal right now is approaching this with the understanding that I, I do think that this movement is pregnant with something. The real question is, you know, what that what that is and making sure that we live up to the promise that um, this sort of very unique coalition has. The, the conference that we co-sponsored with Johns Hopkins is a great beginning. The book that uh, our RDI published earlier on called The Fight for Liberty was also a good start. But I think really a lot of the things that we're going to be creating are still ahead of us. And so a lot will come down to these, you know, civics education resources. A lot will also come down to, you know, this other video series that I think we'll be working on where we're going to be talking about people with people in other countries who have experienced the fall, perhaps from liberal democracy to some measure of authoritarianism. I want to talk to someone in Venezuela who was there in the 1970s, right, when Venezuela was this rich liberal democratic country and who experienced the fall from that to, you know, some measure of authoritarian communism. Talk to someone in Russia in the 90s uh, who was there when there was still potentially that hope of democracy. And then talk to people who, who might have seen both, right? So we have Taiwan and the People's Republic of China. We have South and North Korea. Uh, these are, you know, people who very much come from the same place, but who have established these vastly different governments, vastly different societies. And, and I think that people's well-being and happiness has been significantly influenced by that. And so having a chance to talk to those people and, and showing Americans that, that we really do have a lot to be grateful for. So I think your earlier note about, you know, there being bills that are being co-sponsored in the Senate, I mean, that is an important note. We shouldn't take for granted the, the really significant freedoms that we have right now. And, you know, I mean, we should be really passionate about defending those. In terms of the challenges, I think the single biggest one is, is going to be trying to reconcile different people's perceptions of the other. Actually, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts where you talked about how the perceptions of those on the left 
the, the perceptions that those on the left have of those on the right and that those on the right have of people on the left are just so vastly different from the truth that the perceptions that each side has of the other are just so incredibly different from, from the reality is something that is a huge challenge for us. Uh, and it's something that we're going to be working really hard to overcome. We need to create a common language uh, where people can talk about things that matter to them. And, and, you know, when person X says something, you know, somebody else needs, needs to be hearing what person X actually means when they say it. Uh, whereas today, frequently, you know, when you have someone on the left say something about inequality, what someone on the right might hear is, oh, you know, we, we support something resembling socialism. And when someone on the right says something about family values or something like that, then a person on the left might hear, oh, you know, we want to control pe- the, the private sphere, people, people's home lives. And we need to get past that. We need to get to the point where we can be talking about these different priorities in a way that actually brings people together and that moves us forward. That's going to be a huge challenge and it's something I'm excited to address, but it's definitely something that I'm under no illusion uh, will be easy to overcome. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's not an easy thing to overcome. And I think, you know, some of this work can be done on a person by person by person basis, but how do you scale that, you know, in a country with about 330 million people in it? And I've shared this, these two statistics in the past, but they really are so disturbing, but also informative in a way that's important for perspective. And there was a study that the Journal of Politics published in, in, in 2016, and it found that Democrats thought that 44% of Republicans need more than $250,000 a year and the actual share is 2%. And, and that Republicans thought 38% of Democrats were gay, lesbian, or bisexual, uh, and it's actually 5%. So, I mean, these are, these are huge gulfs um, on, on both fronts. So there is a lot of work to be done. But there are organizations that are trying to, to tackle this and, you know, boil the ocean a little bit. And so on that note, the last question that we ask every guest uh, is, what are you most optimistic about right now? And, and we ask it because too often we, we are in an environment that is so negative all the time. People are now turning off the news because they don't want to see constant negativity in, you know, in, in their daily lives. And so our hope is to end this on a positive note so that maybe this isn't a space where you can be informed and not feel like you want to stick your head in the sand. So, Uriel, what are you most optimistic about? <laughs> I love that. No, I think that's a great way, great way to end. I'll give you, I'll give you an anecdote of, of kind of what makes me most optimistic. I was recently invited to speak uh, to a group of students at Hunter College, a, a local school here in New York, and, and it's a school that is made up of really significantly uh, of a number of immigrants and you know other a great diversity, I would say, of students from all the different boroughs of New York and even beyond. And when I went to speak with them, it was you know a relatively small group of students, and, and we sat in the circle. And I looked around and I noticed you know how many of the of the students were immigrants. And so I actually asked everyone, I'm like, just out of curiosity, you know, how many of you are either immigrants or, or children of immigrants? And with only one exception, everyone else in the room raised their hand. I actually went around and I asked them, all right, well, you know, what brought you here? What brought your families here, et cetera? And pretty much all of them talked about how they saw the U.S. as this beacon of hope and how the rights that we had enshrined here 
were things that many of them could only dream of in some of their home societies. And so they came here really looking for, for a better life for their families. And when they you know, came here and they saw that we had some of our own struggles, they took it upon themselves to, to work on those things, to try to promote uh, these values and um, help us as we sort of struggle with some of our own challenges. And so the fact that these students who came from you know, very frequently incredibly oppressive governments back home came here for, for better lives for their families and... Uh, were willing to fight that fight while they were here is something that really gives me a lot of hope. And it's something that shows me that frequently when you have immigrants coming over, these are people who are Americans by choice. They are the ones who really value the, the kind of core American ideals that, that our country was founded upon. And, and the fact that they're willing to fight for them and that they're willing to work with an organization like ours is really meaningful to me. And, and that's what kind of, I would say, gets me up in the morning, so to speak. Well, that is a very poignant and beautiful way to end. And, and as someone whose grandparents immigrated here with nothing and have, have lived their own version of the American dream, I, I think that's very powerful and important for us to remember. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining this episode. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me on. 